This is The Guardian. Today, understanding Vladimir Putin, who he is and what he wants. С праздником вас! С днём великой победы! Ура! It's been more than two decades since Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin ascended the highest office of the largest country in the world. And in all that time he's been in the public eye, he's cultivated an image of a kind of larger-than-life caricature. Very little is known about his personal life, and that's by design. The only thing we see is, is carefully choreographed uh, and designed to pr project a, a very, frankly, sexualized, masculine image of a, of a strong leader. Sam Green is a professor of politics and director of the Russia Institute at King's College London. He's also the co-author of Putin versus the People, The Perilous Politics of a Divided Russia. Sam has been following Putin's career since the 90s, when he worked as a journalist in Moscow. Remaining inscrutable, right, making it impossible for us to, to really understand what his personal interests might be, what his real instincts might be, what's really going on uh, inside his head, right, uh, is, is an important part of how he feels, right? He stays in control. Now, as the Russian president's war in Ukraine enters its third week and the humanitarian situation grows ever more dire, the whole world is wondering, what is it that Putin really wants and how far will he go to get it? From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in Focus, what drives Vladimir Putin? Sam, let's start at the beginning of Putin. What do we know about his childhood? What was it like? Uh, well, we don't know uh, a tremendous amount. Putin, just before he became uh, president, uh, had a book published, which uh, you know basically talked about his background, tried to explain to people uh, uh, who he was. Right? He grew up in uh, you know post-war Leningrad, right, St. Petersburg now, um, in uh, not a well-to-do family. He had something of a, of a rough-and-tumble uh, childhood, a little bit uh, of, of brush with greatness in, in his family, and that his grandfather had been a chef to the, to the leaders of the Soviet Union, had cooked for Lenin and Stalin. But that was really, uh, that was really about it. So he grew up dealing with deprivation. In fact, there's a direct quote from him in that book that you've mentioned where he says, Once my mother fainted from hunger. People thought that she had died and they laid her out with the corpses. Luckily, Mama woke up in time and started moaning. Now, so Sam, he obviously had some difficult beginnings, but we also know that Putin grew up dreaming of becoming a spy. He grew up uh, enamored with, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of uh, espionage and, 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 and security the way that, uh, that a lot of teenage boys uh, do. And, and unlike most teenage boys, was lucky enough to, to be able to eventually, uh, you know, pursue a career in, um, in the security services. He, he talks about, you know, talking to, 
uh, you know, the one person that he could find around him who had some kind of connection to the KGB, uh, he said he'd like to join. It was explained to him that that's not exactly how you do it. You don't walk in through the through the front door or, or make a, a job application. You put yourself in a in a position where the KGB would notice you, um, and if they do notice you, then you'll get uh, you'll get a tap on the shoulder. Essentially, uh, that meant going to law school, which he did at Leningrad State University, and uh, and eventually he did get that tap on the shoulder. But then eventually, uh, you know, achieving what was his his dream, having grown up watching the post-war spy movies and reading those novels, right, of, of getting sent to, to Europe. Um, not as glamorous as it might have been hoped, right? He ended up in East Germany, not, not West Germany. It looks like it was a fairly uh, boring post, helping the Soviet Union keep tabs on dissidents stationed in Dresden. And I think the formative moment comes right at the end. He tells this story, which which I do take seriously, about sitting in his in his station, East Germans, you know, sensing the the change in, in, in the air and and really increasingly unhappy with the role that the Soviet Union is playing in in propping up uh, a decrepit police state in uh, in the GDR, uh, you know, are essentially banging at the gates. <laughs> And Putin gets on the phone to Moscow to, to get instructions about how he should respond to this. Does he let them in? Does he discuss with them? Does he, does he you know, uh, call for, uh, for police enforcement? And Moscow essentially doesn't answer the phone. And he says it's at this point that he begins to realize that, that this state that he thinks he's serving uh, isn't there anymore. And he feels very much abandoned. Uh, I think he feels uh, a degree not just of, of loss, but of, of anger. And he seems to make a commitment to himself at that point, right, that he's going to devote whatever career he might have uh, in Soviet and then in, in, in Russian politics to ensuring that, that that never happens again, that there are no longer uh, threats to the Russian state. And I imagine that commitment was tested almost immediately. SSSR the Soviet Union itself is no more. Mikhail Gorbachev. Я прекращаю свою деятельность на посту президента СССР. Boris Yeltsin flew into Alma-Ata today in buoyant mood. He had come to bury the Soviet Union and to build the new Commonwealth. It's fair to say that the years after the fall of the USSR were pretty tumultuous. Can you tell me what was Putin himself doing in the early 90s? Well, so Putin came back to uh, came back to Russia. Um, he was offered a, a position uh, within uh, the administration of the, the, the city of St. Petersburg. Putin's job was to uh, negotiate with, uh, with foreign businesses, with foreign governments that were interested in, in investing in the city, um, to help mediate their relations with, uh, with the city administration as well as with uh, the city uh, sort of business community, which uh, of course at that point in time uh, uh, included a lot of people whose ways of doing business um, uh, weren't entirely above board. Mm, right. And then towards the end of the 90s, where does Putin land? In the 90s, Putin is twisting in the wind uh, a little bit, looking for what his next move is, is going to be. When he gets called to, to Moscow to begin to run the FSB, this is one of, after the end of the, of the Soviet Union, the KGB is, is broken up into uh, internal and external uh, security. The FSB is the internal security arm, the Federal Security Service. He's brought in essentially because 
he's seen as a reasonably safe and probably unthreatening right, pair of hands. So this would not have been seen as, as a terribly you know, influential kind of position they were. They were putting him in. This was somebody who you know, knew how the security services worked, right? So he could probably run it. But at the same time, he didn't seem to be the kind of person who had uh, a lot of, of political ambition. But despite the fact that he didn't seem to have a lot of political ambition, from there, his political rise was really rapid. Can you tell me a bit more about that? His rise was rapid. You know, Russia had a massive economic crisis in, in 1998 on the back of the Asian economic crisis. The country went into default. Uh, that uh, led to a series of um, uh, standoffs between Yeltsin and, and the Duma, the, the lower house of parliament, particularly over the, the makeup of the government and the position of, of, of prime minister, such that, that several people uh, uh, served as, as prime minister in, in short order. I came to Moscow first as a, as a freelance journalist in, in August of 1999. Um, he had just been uh, appointed as prime minister. Uh, I didn't probably know enough about Russia at the time to, to actually take that seriously. Yeltsin had gone through a series of, of prime ministers, most of whom hadn't been terribly successful. Began to get the feeling that every you know, adult, probably male Russian, was going to get the chance at some point. Um, and, and he was latest in the line. And Putin was brought in, I think some people would interpret it as simply somebody that, that nobody had any, any reason to object to, right? Because he was kind of a person without a political personality, didn't seem to have any political ideology. He wasn't tied to things that people were upset about uh, uh, from the past, and he didn't seem to project a, a vision of the future that anybody could get upset about. So he was kind of uh, uh, an easy appointment. Um, he might have also looked to people around Yeltsin like somebody they could manage. Yeltsin throughout this time, you know, still uh, tainted by the, the scandals, corruption issues, um, but also is increasingly, uh, increasingly unhealthy, increasingly frail. His advisors are, are believing, as is the general public, that he's essentially becoming incapable of, of running the state. And so uh, a few months before his term uh, is due to end on, on New Year's Eve, 1999, he... Um, uh, uh, goes on television, announces that he is resigning, that he's appointing Putin uh, as acting president. Asks Putin to take care of uh, of the country, um, and then immediately leaves office. And so Putin, from the first of January two thousand, is acting president of the country, and uh, and begins the process of of mobilizing and, and and consolidating political forces so that he can run for uh, for a full presidential term. So he campaigned as an independent candidate and he was elected president in March 2000. What were the early years of Putin's presidency like? One of the first things that he did was to go after independent television, uh, newspapers, news magazines and the like. Right. So within the first year, essentially, Putin has now control over um, uh, every television channel that, that matters in Russia. He begins very quickly to impose control over political parties, over governors, and over most of the rest of the, of the political system. Uh, at the same time, he did set about to try to get the country's economic uh, um, ship in order. Of course, he was helped by the fact that oil prices began to recover in, in, in 1999. So Russia, for the first time since really the, the early 80s, was uh, earning significant amounts of, of money, sufficient amounts of money, really, to fund the state. As you said, I mean, he helped usher in this era of unprecedented prosperity. And I imagine that made him pretty popular at home. And although it is hard to believe now, Putin was also quite popular in the West, wasn't he? 
Uh, Putin was, again, you know, for a lot of the reasons that he was quite popular in Russia. He was such a sharp contrast to Yeltsin. Uh, for one thing, he was, he was sober. He seemed to be uh, reliable. Um, he seemed to be less corrupt. Um, he seemed to have a sense of how the world worked. He was famously the first world leader to call George W. Bush uh, on September 11th, 2001, um, to offer both condolences and, and support. Can we trust Russia? I'm not going to answer to that. So while it might have been a bit much for Bush to say at the time that he looked into his eyes and, and saw his soul. Uh, I'll answer the question. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. I was able to get a sense of his soul. The reality was that most Western leaders thought that this was somebody that they could work with. There were even conversations about a uh, partnership with NATO, created a NATO-Russia council, actually going back to the, to the 1990s, but a partnership that, that, that Putin continued to pursue, right? So throughout this, this period in time, you know, Putin uh, really did project an image of partnership and openness to working with Western governments, with Western businesses. I found my But it wasn't just the politicians and businessmen that were enamoured with Putin. Hollywood was being charmed too. You can look up extraordinary footage of Putin serenading an audience of A-listers, including Sharon Stone, Kevin Costner, who are just on their feet applauding him. Footage that no doubt makes him and them cringe now. But Sam... This love affair didn't last, though, did it? Over time, I think his view of the world began to change. I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's always problematic and, and, and a mistake to sit now and see that, you know, Putin has really decided to break with the rest of the, uh, of the world, certainly with the Western world, um, and sort of impute that back into his, into his logic to say that he was always hiding something, you know, even in those halcyon days of the, of the early 2000s. Uh, I think Putin went through a, a learning process. Right? Uh, I think he came over time to conclude that this kind of an open partnership relationship with the West was not going to serve him very well, even if it might have been good for the country as a whole. Let's talk some more about his evolution. Over the last 10 years, how has Putin approached his role as president? The one thing that hasn't changed is the, the, the direction of motion, right? So this process of really centralizing and strengthening state power, you know, really has taken us straight through to, uh, to where we are now, you know, when Russia ran its, its last parliamentary elections in, in, in September 2021, uh, it was essentially impossible to, to run in those elections as a party, as a candidate. It was impossible to cover those elections as a media organization, to monitor those elections as an independent civil society organization. Really beginning ever since his, his return to the presidency in 2012, um, it seems to have a, a, a much sharper sense of, of, of threat than he had before. Right? And this leads to uh, an escalating and increasingly rapid series of moves to clamp down on independent civic initiative, to clamp down on independent political uh, organizations, and to clamp down on the, on the independent media. So there's an increasingly ominous atmosphere. And in this period, we also then start hearing news of poisonings and assassinations. Was there a particular turning point? You know, Russia really throughout the post-Soviet period and even certain parts of the Soviet period 
was a dangerous place to challenge powerful interests. But what began to change really with the murder of Anna Politkovska, uh, investigative journalist writing for, for Novaya Gazeta, was the sense that in fact challenging Putin and challenging the state itself was now enough not just to put you under pressure, but to put you underground. Crowds gathered at the offices of Novaya Gazeta, the newspaper where she worked. The building was decorated with pictures of Politkovskaya, a staunch Kremlin critic. Even before Politkovskaya's murder, right, we had had the attacks on, on oligarchs. We had the murders of journalists, of civil society, actors, of, of human rights activists, of defence lawyers. The most high profile of which was the assassination on a, a bridge just outside the Kremlin within view frankly, of, of, of Putin's office, of, of uh, Boris Nemtsov, a former Yeltsin-era uh, politician who had then joined forces with the emerging opposition to Vladimir Putin. And we have seen the, uh, the poisoning and attempted murder of Alexei Navalny in 2020. Right? We've obviously seen an attacks on you know, people opposed to, to Putin and, and to the Russian security state uh, outside of the country as well. We can think of people like uh, Skripal and, the, and his attempted murder in Salisbury in the UK, but we can also think about numerous other activists who have been attacked in, in places from Dubai to Vienna to, to Berlin. And at the same time in these years, he also started ramping up his aggression abroad, didn't he? The, the, the war we're seeing him in, in, in now is very different than the wars he's fought in the, uh, in the past, right? So he goes to war in Georgia in 2008, right? Um, it's a, it's a five-day conflict against an enemy that really has no chance uh, of putting up any meaningful resistance. He could have taken the entire country, essentially, if, if, if he had wanted to. Um, the uh, annexation of Crimea was, was in fact not a war. This morning, more unidentified pro-Russia armed militias controlling the streets of Crimea's capital. It didn't involve uh, really any shooting. It didn't involve even uh, crossing borders. It involved opening a gate and letting uh, troops from the, the, the Russian Black Sea fleet uh, take control of territory that they were, for all intents and purposes, already in. The initial invasion of, of eastern Ukraine in, in 2014 involved uh, initially very small numbers of, of, of regular Russian forces, larger numbers of, 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 of contract troops and, and, and mercenaries, right? But, but also was not a major conflagration. Uh, he's been very careful to ensure that the, the, the human costs and, uh, don't, don't come back to Russia. Which brings us to Ukraine and just how different this war has been. What is it? that has ramped up Putin's concern, and some might call it paranoia, about Ukraine's position in the world and Russia's in relation to that. In 2013, when uh, Moscow puts a lot of pressure on the government then of, of President Viktor Yanukovych to um, uh, renege on a promise to sign a deeper comprehensive free trade agreement with the European Union, essentially beginning a process of, of European economic integration for, for the country. This really pulls the rug out from, from under the ability of, of, of millions of ordinary Ukrainians to imagine their own future, right, which they see as, as much more prosperous with, with European integration than, than with Russian integration, um, which then leads to, to the Euromaidan uh, uprising in, in, in beginning in November 2013. 
eventually forces Yanukovych out of um, uh, uh, out of office and, and, and leads to a sequence of events, including the, the annexation of Crimea, the initial war in, in Donbass, which takes us right up to the war that we're seeing um, uh, that we're seeing now. So if this war represents a continuation of something Putin started in 2014, what have his demands been on invading Ukraine? On paper, right, um, Putin's demands have been demilitarization, denazification, whatever that means, um, and uh, an assurance that uh, Ukraine never joins NATO. Right, along with recognizing Russian sovereignty over Crimea um, and and the independence of uh, the so-called uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics in the east. Essentially, right, uh, most analysts, myself included, would interpret that to mean regime change, removing the current government, uh, replacing it with a government more friendly to Moscow, and then you know leaning on that puppet government to um, uh, to, to recognize Russia's other demands. But in this ultimate ambition he has that Ukraine should disarm, stay neutral and stay outside NATO, how far do you think Putin would be willing to go? At this point, I think that we have to assume wholesale regime change and, and more or less the complete occupation of, of, of Ukraine. The problem that I have with that, having just said it, right, um, is that I don't think it's feasible. I think it is feasible for Russia to capture significant amounts of Ukrainian territory, possibly even Kiev. Um, it is possible for Russia to try to install a puppet government in at least parts of, of Ukraine, but they will not have the cooperation of, of really any significant part of the Ukrainian population or even the Ukrainian bureaucracy. So what I worry about right, is how Putin reacts when he eventually has to face the fact right, that um, getting what he wants isn't entirely possible. And on the other side of this, what could be done at this stage, in your view, to get Putin to stop the assault on Ukraine? The most immediate end to this conflict begins in Moscow. We are facing at the moment, right, a Russian leadership that is uh, isolated and increasingly attempting to insulate itself from the consequences of this war at the same time that it's it's failing miserably to insulate the rest of the country from the consequences of this war. And those are consequences that will be paid not simply over the next six to 12 months by people currently living in Russia, but by the children and potentially the grandchildren of, of people currently living in Russia. Um, that's a, a, a prospect that I think Russians are beginning to face. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, I think the most direct route to, to ending this war. The Russian people. The Russian people, the Russian elite, people who have essentially been watching as Putin takes away their future. But one thing we've learned that Guardian's Moscow correspondent Andrew Roth told us is that Putin's actually very isolated at the moment, which is partially down to the pandemic, and in part because it seems he's not getting enough good advice or good intel from people who might have otherwise challenged the rationale behind this invasion. What do you make of that? Uh, well, again, Putin wouldn't be the first uh, autocrat to um, begin to get very bad advice. You begin to get very bad advice because... 
you surround yourself with with people who tell you what you want to hear. The problem, I think, at the moment is is that Putin seems to be doubling down on prosecuting a war that he will not be able to win in the long run, right? Uh, and again, from which everybody else in Russia uh, is going to emerge very much as a as a loser. So I think that at this point, whether you're a Western government thinking about how to respond to this, or whether you are someone in Russia thinking about how to respond to this. Changing Putin's mind is probably not an option. Coming up, how might ordinary Russians influence what Putin does next? Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. There's one thing I read that really strikes me about Putin in that he was apparently quite obsessed with Colonel Gaddafi's death. And we hear that he would repeat video on his phone to watch it again and again. Gaddafi is seen clearly alive, dazed and bloodied from his wounds. He's dragged off the vehicle, surrounded, swept along by the crowd. In these moments, with shouts in the background of keep him alive and the sounds of gunfire, it appears he is killed. So it seems that this is a very real fear that he has. And I wonder, do dictators and autocrats ever get happy endings? No, they don't. Most autocrats leave office in a cage or in a box. For a couple of reasons. One of which is that it's very difficult for an autocrat to leave office uh, voluntarily. They will be a threat to whoever comes next. And so they, they, they try to hold on to, to secure a future. And the longer they hold on, the, the, the less secure they feel. The other reason, though, is that they eventually tend to, to miscalculate. Right? They tend to use more and more force, either at home or abroad, or in, in, in Putin's case, both until their, their use of force scares so many people about the, the, the prospect of uh, their own future um, that they have no choice but to depose him. And what about at home? Is there a sense that Putin supporters might be rethinking their loyalty to him now? We have seen 13,500 people arrested in protests since this war began. Protests not just in Moscow and, and, and St. Petersburg, where there's often protests, but in between 60 and 100 cities across the country. That's more than we saw arrested in the protests around the, the return and the arrest of, of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, in the beginning of, of 2021. We're also seeing queues forming at, at bank machines and, and, and other you know, retail centers around the country as people begin to come to grips with the economic cost of this war. So far... Those appear to be two very different crowds of people. So the risk for Putin right, is when the bank machines and the store shelves begin to run empty and those two crowds of people merge. At that point, 
it becomes very difficult to see how he maintains anything like the kind of support that has kept him aloft for the past 22 years. Sam, as a keen Putin watcher, what have you learned? What's the key thing you've learned about him that people shouldn't forget? So I think the important thing to remember about Putin is that he is not Russia himself. He does not determine everything that that Russia does. And he cannot do what he does unless he can maintain some traction in that relationship with, with the Russian people, with the Russian economy, with the Russian state, with the Russian bureaucracy. And so if we want to see what's going to happen next, at some point, I think we have to start paying a little bit less attention to what's going on inside Putin's head and a little bit more attention to what's going on inside the heads of 140-something million other Russians. When they change their minds, Putin becomes irrelevant. That was Sam Green. His book, Putin versus the People, is available in all good bookshops. And you can follow The Guardian's extensive coverage with what's going on in Ukraine and in Russia with reports on the ground from our correspondents at theguardian.com. And there's more. If you're keen to hear Jonathan Friedland discussing US politics every Friday, you'll want to subscribe to his new podcast as Johnny's show won't be available on Politics Weekly UK for much longer. It's called Politics Weekly America, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Musty Aziz and Courtney Youssef. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mike Lee Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. Thank you.